We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Well, hello, hello again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Women Worth Knowing. My name is Jasmine Allnut, as I'm sure you're well aware. And once again, I am joined by the most specialist guest I can imagine, my mother, <laughs> Debbie Allnut. I actually think the last time, <laughs> in the last episode, I forgot to mention your actual name. Oh. <laughs> Debbie Allnut is my mother. <laughs> so here she is to join me. And we're going to be looking today at the life of uh, Edith Schaefer. So this is going to be kind of fun um, because this is somebody that, well, actually my parents introduced me to. So it's a familiar one to her and to me. So I thought, man, this will be a good one. Let's go ahead and launch into this. So I just want to preface this by saying some of our listeners may be familiar with Frances Schaefer. Uh, in case you're like, who's Edith Schaefer? A lot more people are familiar with Frances Schaefer, her husband. Um, he was the a 20th century philosopher, theologian. I personally think of him as like the C.S. Lewis of the 1960s and 70s. <laughs> Because he was such an influential Christian thinker, uh, for especially for the West, you know, for Europe and America. Um, I use his writings for um, my Bible college and school of worship classes, some of his books and resources, because he just had a really um, unique handle on the flow of Western history, Western culture. And so I find it very helpful when I'm teaching church history and, and stuff like that. Um, he was almost prophetic for the times that we live in today. In fact, I remember we were watching his How Shall We Then Live video yeah. series, remember, a few years ago? Yeah. And I remember you or dad saying just like, this guy's a prophet. My gosh. It's just, you know, <laughs> such insight from, yeah. what, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, but again, like I said, today we want to talk about uh, his wonderful wife, Edith, because she was a pretty remarkable Christian in her own right. And mom, you have some experience with her well, as well. Years ago, I read all of her books mm. um, and maybe just two or three of Francis's. My favorite of his was this little green book called Basic Bible Studies. Oh, it's cute. Really, really good. Shared it with a lot of people. But I read her autobiography, mm. Tapestry, which is about 650 Oh my gosh. It weighs about three pounds. (laughs) It's it's mammoth, but it's so good. The thing I really found about all her books was that she was real. Mm -hmm. She was transparent and even self-deprecating in order to show the genuine work of Christ in her life, Mm -hmm. you know. She was A, and he had transformed her into B. You know, it was just, um, she was intelligent. She was well-traveled. But she was also humble, and she was an unashamed homemaker. Good for her. Yeah. Her books had big ideas about spirituality, but she also had practical ideas as small as how to sit in church service with a preschooler drawing stick figures with a pen and paper <laughs> You know, illustrating a Sunday sermon to keep them occupied for 45 minutes. Oh, my gosh. So big thoughts and little thoughts. Wow. Yeah. She covered the whole spectrum. She did. I love that. That's a great way to kind of encapsulate her story. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, she was born, Edith was born, Edith Seville, that was her maiden name. She was born in 1914. Uh, Her parents were China Inland Mission missionaries. That's fun. That ties into the podcast we just did um, that you were doing on the Glovers and uh, Caroline Gates. Yeah. So they were in Wenzhou, China. And um, her parents actually gave her, well, obviously the name Edith, but also a Chinese name, Meifu, which means beautiful happiness. I thought that was cute. So when she was five years old, uh, her family came back to America on furlough, but they ended up having to stay because of some 
health issues. I'm not sure which family member had health problems. Maybe one of her parents. I don't know if you remember that, but Mm -mm. yeah. Her dad, George, ended up becoming a pastor. And so he did that in the States and helped edit the China Inland Mission magazine. Uh, So they moved around quite a bit. Um, By Edith's senior year of high school in 1931, she had lived in California, Pennsylvania, New York, Canada. And then they had recently moved back to Philadelphia for her senior year. And so she'd grown up, you know, well-educated, kind of like what my mom was just saying, um, well-read, well-traveled, obviously. very, um, And she was very established in her faith. She had no problem contending her faith with, even with her teachers. I mean, she was very bold. She had no problem with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that senior year in Philly was kind of difficult. She felt like an outsider. Here she is in another new town once again. But she also was sensing a little bit of a disconnect in her life, that there was a a lack of reality in her Christianity somehow. Maybe it was kind of an intellectual thing that just needed to go deeper into the heart. And we'll see that happen over the course of her story. So June of 1932, she went to a meeting at her Presbyterian church. It was a little more on the liberal side of the Presbyterian denomination. And there was a Unitarian there giving a message (laughs) entitled, How I know Jesus is not the son of God and how I know the Bible is not the word of God. It's like, whoa, (laughs) somebody's trying to ruffle a few feathers. And and so um, when he finished, he opened up for Q&A and Edith was like, whoa, I mean, immediately she was ready to just stand up and make a rebuttal. But before she could even get the words out, this young man behind her had already started making his defense for the Christian faith. And so she sat down. She's like, who is that guy? And her friend told her, oh, that's Francis Schaeffer. And so he finished his argument. And then Edith stood up because she still had something to share. And she made her little rebuttal. And Francis noticed her and he asked a friend, who's that? You know, so very cute. And so after the meeting, not surprisingly, he hunted her down and immediately asked if he could take her home. And she said, oh, I have a date. And he just bluntly said, break it. And I guess she did because they started dating. <laughs> I just thought that was so cute. It was it was really cool because from their very first meeting, um, they really respected each mm. other's minds and spirituality. Mm. Um, but like every marriage, yeah. it took a lifetime for them to really understand the intricacies of their personalities because you don't always find out about tempers and strong <laughs> wills yes. until after the honeymoon. Totally. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. But yeah, I think that is important to note. They were very equal-minded. They were. And she was very uh theologically minded very brilliant yeah. just like him yeah. mm-hmm. it was a good it was a good match but yes <laughs> there were challenges as we shall see so yeah. <laughs> they spent the summer getting to know each other and then they went their separate ways for college fran was uh i'm just calling fran it's just easier for me <laughs> was studying for the ministry which is interesting his it was against his parents wishes he was an only child they had other plans for their son and they were very disappointed in him but he really wanted to serve the lord yeah so he was studying at hampton sydney college in virginia and Edith was studying home economics at Beaver College near Philadelphia. So they continued their relationship by correspondence. And at one point, Fran was feeling like, oh, maybe I should break up with her because he was thinking, what if the Lord calls me somewhere where a woman can't go? And so, you know, he's kind of in a quandary about this, but it's so cute. Their breakup, he broke up with her on New Year's Eve, kind of unfortunate timing over the holidays, but their breakup lasted for two hours. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he called her and said, I've been so miserable since I left you. <laughs> it's so cute. So, so much so for weird. that. And so that was kind of the trigger for them to just say, you know what, we want to get married. And so, yeah. but, but not right away. So that night they, agreed they would wait until he finished school. So two and a half years later was when they would be able to get married. So they just kept writing letters and their letters were just kind of like what we were talking about, very spiritual and theological, also romantic. Um, My favorite was, um, the excerpt that I read was one where Edith said, 
darling, I love you. I'm in Bible class and I've just had an argument about creation. <laughs> I just think that's so cute. It's just like a mix of everything here. Oh. I love you, but I'm also really debating, you know, theology right now. <laughs> so they um, got married in 1935 and Edith's father performed the ceremony. Fran's mother almost didn't come because she had opposed the marriage. So they had some oh, challenges yeah. there yeah. with the family for yeah. sure. They spent their honeymoon at a Bible conference in <laughs> Michigan. That does not, I don't know. Maybe the letters were romantic, but that does not sound romantic to me. <laughs> but they served as camp counselors for their honeymoon. Probably because they didn't have any money. They had to go yeah. somewhere they, <laughs> they could earn room and board. Yeah. So uh, they actually had to sleep in a room in the attic on a couple of uh, flimsy twin mattresses that they put on top of each other. I mean, talk about an atypical honeymoon, right? <laughs> Nobody listening to this can complain after hearing this story. Yeah. So, um Edith said that she had to sleep with one hand on the floor to brace herself so she wouldn't fall out <laughs> of the bed. <laughs> quite an adventure. You could tell this is quite an unusual, a unique couple. So Fran wanted to go to seminary um, after the honeymoon. You know, he'd finished his uh, bachelor's and now it's time to go on to seminary. And so they were headed back to Philadelphia. And on the way, Edith bumped into the car in front of them and Fran freaked out on her. What you yeah. were mentioning before about tempers. This right. was her first, I think, initiation with his temper and he got so upset how in the world could you be so you know silly as to do something like this and um edith said if that's the way you feel i'll never drive a car again and she never drove a car for the rest of her life i was like wow yeah strong will day oh my gosh these personalities <laughs> so he obviously had a temper she was obviously stubborn you could see where this could be pretty combustible but and they did have quite a few challenges in the early years um, but, you know, it could be combustible, but they were quite a team. Also, you know, like I said, they did have challenges to work through in their marriage. They also had a lot of um, theological struggles to deal with, not with each other so much, but with uh, people at the seminary. Yeah. Um, Fran really, and he talked about this a lot in his writings, how he just saw a lack of love and grace for dealing with disagreements. Yeah. Uh, sounds kind of familiar, right? That sounds yeah. like our times today. Yeah. And, and just it really bothered him. And so he ended up switching to a different um, school. He graduated from Faith Theological Seminary. And then he pastored in Grove City, Chester, Pennsylvania. Uh, eventually, they moved to St. Louis. So this was, I can't remember if this was between five and ten years total at these three churches, yeah. somewhere in there. You know, and Edith, you know, she'd moved so much since her childhood. And at this point, she was kind of over it. Yeah. Like, especially before the move to St. Louis, she really went through a, a struggle. Like, she just, you know, her stubbornness, she did not want to do it. Yeah. And uh, she was concerned about their kids, you know, and, and stuff like that. They had two children at this point, two little ones, five and under. But it was interesting. Um, one day, as she's like debating and struggling over this with the Lord, a steam iron blew up in her face yeah. and she had to go to the hospital. She was okay. Crazy. But for whatever reason, the Lord used this really random event to kind of um, wake her up. Yeah. I don't know why, but he used this to kind of wake her up and show her, you are being so stubborn. You're not yielding to the things I want to do in your life. And so she later wrote, uh, communication between the Heavenly Father and his children is diverse. It is not always the exciting, positive answer <laughs> to prayer, which other people can envy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it was a it was a rough lesson, but God used it to, to really teach her and to communicate with her in a very unique way, right. in a way she needed to hear. And, you know, we'll continue to see that, the developing prayer life and relationship she had with the Lord in these years. Yeah. So uh, the Lord really gifted both Fran and Edith for children's ministry, interestingly enough. So they started a ministry called Children for Christ, and it right. circulated throughout all the Presbyterian churches. Did you, were you familiar with that at all? No? Okay. It must have, probably because it was a Presby thing, so. <laughs> um, but it was pretty popular in uh, America. And so in 1947, the Independent Board of Presbyterian Foreign Missions asked Fran to take a fact-finding tour of Europe and learn about the churches there, how the American church could support them, especially in terms of children's ministry. 
And so uh, Fran goes on this 90-day tour, and it completely wiped him out, not just physically, but emotionally. He really just didn't do well without Edith. They were such a team, and he needed her there. And so when he got back, he almost collapsed. But after he gave his report to the missions board, they decided, you know what, we want you and Edith to go together and establish a permanent ministry in Europe. They must have realized, like, this guy can't handle it by himself. (laughs) We'll just send them both as a missionary couple. So this was not an easy decision um, for them, you know, to just uproot and move to Europe. But they chose to step out in faith, even though, you know, they had a few misgivings. They had enough from the Lord to know, like, okay, he'll lead us. And so Edith said, I am impressed by the constantly repeated opportunity in life to trust the Lord in a fog. <laughs> Boy, haven't we all had to do that? Yes, you guys have, I yes, know. <laughs> true. So in 1948, um, the Schaefers moved to Lausanne, Switzerland, with the goal of encouraging the churches there and establishing children's ministry, which is what they had been asked to go do. That's uh, great. Yeah, to use something yeah. throughout Europe. But that winter, that first winter, um, their three daughters, now they had three kids. Sorry, I'm not really touching on the kids that much, but at this point they had three daughters. <laughs> they all got super sick. Um, two of them even had pneumonia. And so mm. um, a friend suggested, why don't you take them up to the Alps? It's a little healthier, yeah. you know, better uh, better air, all of that. And so they went up there that summer to recuperate, and they just fell in love with the Alps and decided to stay there. Yeah. And so they lived in the Swiss Alps for 32 years, wow. which is crazy. Yeah. Boy, this is in the days before you had to have a visa for stuff, apparently. <laughs> you could just go and live in Switzerland. I don't know. No I big deal. I'm sure there were visas. Yeah, yeah well, maybe you're right. Uh, so Fran... Um, Traveled across Europe. That was their hub in the Alps. And then he would travel around Europe, minister. um, And, uh, you know, they're trying to establish children for Christ there. But they were also just looking at the general climate of the culture uh, there in Europe. And they saw so much um, liberalism in the church. They just saw secularism, existentialism that had been creeping in following World War II. And and there's just a lot of dead churches. Yeah, Yeah, it's true. You guys have experienced that. I know in Europe, it can be really challenging. Mm -hmm. And so they were really shocked by what they were seeing. So Fran goes through a a spiritual crisis in 1951. And he basically decided, you know what, I need to just go back. You know, I think through all of this, you know, just being challenged so much in his faith and everything. He said, you know what, I need to go back to square one. I'm going to go back to my early days of Gnosticism before I got saved and start all over again to just determine if Christianity is actually really true. And Edith kind of freaked out, (laughs) as I'm sure any wife would, Um, but she really felt like the Lord told her to stay out of it and just pray for him. Very wise woman. I mean, yeah, what a word, I think, to all of us in any relationship, friendships, you know, uh, marriages uh, with children. There's a certain time where we need to stay out of it and pray. And I think that's what she realized. Mm -hmm. And her prayer life really exploded during this time. It's Mm -hmm. interesting. I don't know if that would have happened if it wasn't for him going through this crisis. It really took her deeper. It's true. Yeah. She said she resolved to believe and behave as if it mattered as if it would make a difference in history if I acted upon the admonition to pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, as if it would affect history. I love that. That's so great. An urgency. Yeah. So prayer really transformed her her walk. It's interesting because um, in her 20s, she'd been criticized by her peers for the way she prayed out loud. How weird. And (laughs) yeah, later when prayer became the just driving force Mm. behind their ministry at Labrie, I thought about how she had remained determined to grow in her prayer life regardless of the criticism. It's interesting. And so I thought the enemy of her soul had really been trying Mm. um, early in her life to defeat that very area that would later undergird 
the faith ministry that the Lord was going to give to her and her husband. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it? As you get older and you start looking back, you see those occasions where, you know, maybe the enemy was trying something, but God really did have the victory in your life. I love that. And Yeah. That's huge. And yeah. you're right, because that was going to become kind of the, like you said, the undergirding mm. of their ministry. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's, yeah, that's really interesting. So how... it took him having a time of doubt for her to push in and yeah. And then out of that birth, maybe the next thing that I was coming. That. It is cool. It's huh? really cool, huh? We think God's doing one thing and he's doing something totally opposite. Yeah. Uh-huh. That actually stood out. You're right, Mom. That actually stood out to me, too, when I was going over this. I was like, oh, I've always heard this story as Fran's crisis of faith. Yes. And you don't realize, like, God was doing a major work in Edith here at the same time. Yeah. So I love that. That's so cool. And he mm. did actually, P.S., come out of that crisis yes, of faith stronger <laughs> than right. ever. And it was, And it was really, I mean, the whole thing was just the Lord because they needed this to establish them for what came ahead like yes, you were saying yeah. and and my mom always says what happens now is for later you've said that to me my whole life <laughs> and it's true so it's going to come in later yeah so in the lord's timing god starts bringing around as they come out of this hard season uh spiritually and and they're you know getting reestablished, and now they're having victory um god started to bring around these young people um some of them were friends of their kids you know their kids are getting a little older you know teenage years and all yeah, that sort of thing high school. and they're all coming around asking spiritual questions and so they started to kind of open up their home for tea and discussion. They had yeah. done this. I guess there was a local girls school that they had opened their door to like, hey, if you guys want to come and just have tea and discussion with us. Mm. And so, you know, this is just a little foretaste yep, yep. of what God was going to do mm-hmm. later. Um, but at this point, you know, you see kind of some hints of what would come later. But after the birth of their fourth child, their son, Frankie, they actually were due for a furlough back to the U.S. So at this point, they go back to the States and they went through some really severe trials. Yeah. Um For one thing, they found themselves living in super cramped quarters. I think they only had two rooms uh, for 16 months with four children. I mean, this was like, (laughs) I know Edith was at her wits ends. I'm sure, uh, yeah, all you moms out there like groaning as you hear that. (laughs) Living in two rooms, a major challenge. Um, Plus, they continued to be at odds with their denomination because Fran just kept seeing this lack of love. And and lack of a a work of the Holy Spirit. People weren't depending on the Spirit, like we were just talking about in our previous episode. Yeah. And and just, I don't know, it was just dry. And and so you could just kind of sense that a split might be imminent here. Like they might need to just break away and do their own thing because there just wasn't that like-mindedness. There was Mm -hmm. just so much animosity. Um, not only that, but Frankie, their son, you know, he's very young and he got polio. Yeah. Um, and then the missions board started kind of retaliating on at the Schaefer's and, and discouraged people from supporting them in their ministry. Um, and, and then they finally make it back over to Switzerland and there's an avalanche that almost took them out. I mean, at their house. It's like, gosh. Super warfare. Super yeah. warfare. In fact, <laughs> Edith said, time after time, we were helped by people, but each encouraging thing was followed by a discouraging one. Mm. And each mail, uh, every time the mail came, it brought letters urging us to leave Switzerland and come be a pastor of a church in America or teach in a seminary. Yeah. So like you said, I feel like, yeah, the enemy was just coming in like a flood Yeah. Um, because God had a plan for them in Switzerland, yes. but, mm-hmm. you know, they, at the moment, it was hard to see. Yeah. And yet, you know, like that verse says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. It's beautiful. And yeah. so that's what happened. God had begun to give them a vision for work in Switzerland. And that's why they had gone back. And they kind of just had to stick to that, that yeah. vision. And Fran felt led to name their chalet there in the Alps, <laughs> Labri, which is the French word for shelter. Because he thought, I want to make a spiritual shelter for seekers. You know, they remembered those tea and discussions they had had yeah. prior to their furlough. 
and they were thinking about this possible ministry. Um, and so Edith made a sketch of his vision and wrote under it, Labrie, come for morning coffee or afternoon tea with your questions. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the goal there. Uh, the only problem was the Swiss government wanted them out of the country. Apparently, <laughs> the Swiss had learned about their religious influence in this particular neighborhood they were living in. And um, I don't know, I guess it just was unwanted. But they made a concession with the Schaefers. They said, okay, hey, if you can find a chalet in a, a canton, which would be, I guess, like a district, yep. I think, yeah, um, that approves of you and lets you stay here, then, then you can go there. That's totally fine, but you can't stay in this one. So the, wherever they were staying at that time, it, they, they were didn't compl- want them. Yeah, they didn't want them. There were complaints. <laughs> <laughs> and so they searched and searched. And then finally, I mean, they could not find anything. And then finally, the day before the government had given them a deadline, yeah. Edith finds a chalet. Of course, this is so the Lord, right? The 11th yes. hour. Yes. Uh, The only problem was it was not for rent, which is what they wanted. It was for sale. Yeah. And that was a problem because she was like, oh, man, Fran is not going to go for this. So she told him about the chalet, but she kind of conveniently (laughs) omitted the fact that, you know, this was for sale and just kept praying. She, you know, again, Mm -hmm. her prayer life now was becoming her bedrock. And so the next morning, a check arrived in the mail for $1,000 with a note attached that said, for a house that will always be open to young people. Amazing. Like, who knew? Nobody knew that this was their vision. It was totally the Lord. And so Mm -hmm. she really sensed this was a green light uh, to tell him. And so she said, hey, Fran, I just want you to know, this house (laughs) is not for rent. It's just for sale. Um, But, you know, he went and looked at it, and they agreed. They really felt like, okay, this is the Lord. This is obvious. And so they agreed to step out in faith and take it. And within three months, and I love this, without appealing for any funds because, yeah. you know, they were basically, I think they were cut off at this point from the yeah. Presbyterians. They're yeah. independent, right? Yeah, and so right. they just, in faith, they went ahead with uh, the, you know, the purchase. And then in, within three months, the Lord provided a full 8,000 francs that they needed for the down payment. Amazing. So God just did it. And that's how Labrie Fellowship began in 1955. Right. And so... They opened up their home for discussions. Um, like I said, they, they made a rule, though, that all the discussions had to revolve around ideas, not organizations or personalities. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. Instead yeah. of, like, getting caught up in, I hate this person or yeah. this person, this and that. It's totally. just, like, let's focus on big ideas. Behind. Yes. And yeah. All that. Behind yeah. all that. And so so everything was discussed in light of what the Bible had to say. And so after dinner, Fran would basically invite everybody into the living room to sit around the fire with a hot drink and have just an open Q&A. And and anything, anything was on the table. You could ask any questions you wanted. And yet it was cool because no matter what was asked, he always found a way to bring in a Christian worldview. amazing that way. Yeah, I think that whole going back over and relearning his faith and just coming, you know, relaying that groundwork had really worked out a lot of those ideas for him. So he was able to do this. So more and more people start um, coming and the ministry starts growing. They had all these, it was all young people, like longtime students, long-term students would come, people just visiting for the weekend. Fun fact, Eric Clapton actually visited Labrie. (laughs) That blew my mind. I was like, how in the world did that happen? And um, President Ford's children were actually at Labrie, Billy Graham. Mm. Which will be, yeah. So President many. Ford's kids. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> Notables. Yes. Yeah. So it develops uh, as this kind of shared home. And it wasn't a commune or a commune, however you pronounce that. Um, they made sure that they maintained privacy, boundaries for the family. Um, uh, it, but they also included those that visited. Obviously, they were very accepting, welcoming, all of that. But they made sure they kept their boundaries up as a family. And so what it ended up becoming, Labrie was more than just a place for philosophical, biblical discussion or just a getaway for the weekend. It was a, a Christian family yeah. that they were inviting people into. In fact, she wrote a book called 
What is Family? Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read that one. So they were very real and transparent. I think Mom mentioned that earlier, how transparent mm-hmm. Edith was yeah. in her writings, just raw and yeah. honest about their flaws, honest about their failings, um, kind of like an Isabel Kuhn kind of a thing. Yes. <laughs> um, Edith said, we were not politely bowing to each other, always saying the right thing in sweet tones of voice. <laughs> it was not like that. In fact, she tells a story about uh, Fran losing his temper and throwing an ivy plant in the kitchen onto <laughs> yeah. the floor. And Edith calmly cleaned the floor, <laughs> repotted the plant, and it ended up becoming a family joke because he did it more than once. He kept throwing that plant on the ground all the time. Um, I just love that. But they just didn't talk about it in front of him. It's like, no, don't tell dad. Or don't say it in front of dad. But they would joke behind his back. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah, yes. Um, Edith uh, handled her frustration and anger by, she said, trying to get more done in the next hour than any human being could do. So she just made herself very productive instead yeah. of destroying things. So <laughs> their door was always open at Labrie, like I said. And so this could be really challenging for Edith because she had to do all the cooking, you know, hosting yeah. for all these young people. And kind of at a moment's notice, sometimes they, she would think, OK, there's 20, 30 people here. And then. A flood of people would come in at the last minute. Sometimes the dinners would expand to the evening meals would end up being 100 people. Amazing. And she's, yes, and she's trying to make this really nice for the glory of God. She's trying to, yeah. you know, make this nice presentation for everybody. Yeah. And so it's little wonder that sometimes, you know, she would even tell her kids, like, I don't know if I can handle one more person coming yeah. in. Yeah. And so one writer said, Edith helped her, but I, I love this. She said, uh, Edith helped to restore and popularize the all but lost arts of hospitality and homemaking within the evangelical community during the late 20th century. And I thought you had some interesting perspective on that. Well, what I remember about the book Labrie was not necessarily Frances's spiritual discussions, which were amazing, but mm. her undergirding ministry of prayer mm. and how she always looked for ways to bring visual beauty into people's lives. The flower on the coffee tray, the tablecloth spread across the lawn, yeah. um, food carefully prepared, as you said. You know, together she and Fran ministered to the whole person, mm, I love body, that. soul, mind, spirit. Jesus said, you know, I'm going to prepare prepare a place for you, right? Mm. And there's something really special about arriving at a place prepared for you. Mm. Um, It's more than hospitality. It's thoughtful. It's planned. And Edith understood this, and the artistic side of her nature allowed her to express it for a good purpose at Labrie. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's so true, Mom. Body, soul, spirit, like holistic. Yes. I love that ministry yeah. to Not just to mind, not just spirit, but the whole, the body, the emotions, the, yeah. the soul, just... So yeah. so cool, so cool, and that, I think that's why the people Lord get used hungry. It. They need to be fed. You yes, know? <laughs> those practical things that sometimes yes. we just don't even think mm-hmm. about. Yeah, that's so huge. Yeah, it really was important. And and again, going back, circling back to prayer and the importance that that yeah. was. She mm-hmm. really did undergird the ministry, and she understood kind of like what Mom was just saying: fellowship yes, and coming right. together to a place prepared for us. And of course, Fran is bringing in truth. You know, love. Yes, yes obviously, very, very very loving presentation yes. of truth. But you know, just that philosophical perspective that he had and everything. But all of that together was what made Labrie successful because they yes. really met people where they mm-hmm. were at, loved them at that place, yeah. and, and and brought them further along from there. And yeah. so loads of young people um, got saved. Um, and, and a lot of people say, even though, yes, obviously Fran's you know, influence is probably more well-known, uh, one historian said without Edith, there really would not have been any Labrie. Mm-hmm. You can probably kind of gather yeah, that from how yeah. we've shared about it. I mean, it really would mm-hmm. not have existed without her. So Fran was frustrated because he really felt like he could help even more people beyond the community there. Yeah. Um, but he didn't want to record or write down any of these, his uh, 
messages or his thoughts or anything like that because he just didn't want to become to become a formula. He wanted it to stay spirit led. Yeah. But which is wonderful. But yeah. Edith and a coworker agreed one night to covertly <laughs> hide a microphone in the room while he was sharing around the fire. And from that began a tape ministry that went worldwide. I think you're even yeah, familiar did, with that. Did they put it in the proverbial ivy pot? Yes. Yeah, the <laughs> ivy pot, totally. <laughs> um, I actually listened to some of those um, cassettes back in the day. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. Oh, they were really good. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. So before long, he was being invited to speak in Europe and America um, after this. And so, you know, really, this was the wider audience. And the Lord used it, you know. And, and I think he still stayed spirit-led. <laughs> yeah. His lectures developed yeah. into some of the most uh, of his most well-known books. Uh, also, the video series I mentioned earlier, How Shall We Then Live? I think he had another one as well. Um, good stuff, man. And uh, this ministry included um, some involvement with, like, the pro-life movement, um, and he was, he he did have connection, like you said, with Gerald Ford because yeah. of his kids and mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of continued throughout the 60s and 70s. But in 1978, he was diagnosed with cancer, yeah. um, only given six months to live. Uh, but the Lord extended his life six years. And yeah. he felt those were the most productive ever. And I, I love, yeah, how the Lord gives that extended lease on life. And wow. then he passed away uh, in 1984. But what a, what a couple yeah. and, and, and what a, what a marriage, you know, yeah. I just, yeah, it, I was thinking well, you know, us of a couple. Um, I, they do. They kind of remind me of Maria and Hudson Taylor. You know, what happens when um, God brings love to an unpolished, God-fearing man with a genius mind yes. by means of a very polished, spiritual, intelligent <laughs> woman? Both are enriched as they're, they're learning how to die to self and live for each other mm. and for God, you know? Mm, Their life's that. a picture of that. Also, um, Chuck and Kay Smith, they were— mm. They were called specifically to the 60s generation who were also looking for peace, love, and understanding um, during a very turbulent time. And through their ministry, yeah. um, they found Jesus. Hmm. That's what they needed all along. Wow. So these these couples that God brought together for divine purposes yes. at a specific period of history. It's really fascinating. Yeah, for such a time as this. Exactly. It's almost oh, like perfect. That's actually an interesting. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, how, mm. you know. Chuck and Kay were kind of like an American version, and they're doing yes, this over in Europe, yeah. you know, with the you know in, intellectual kids of, and youth yeah. in that area. God loves so interesting. Yeah. I love it. So, um, just you know, in closing, uh, a lot of people don't know that Edith was a prolific writer herself. Um, we've kind of mentioned this already. Mom mentioned she wrote books, but she wrote or co-wrote twenty books, um, <laughs> including a couple gold medallion winners: uh, Affliction and The Tapestry, which you mentioned before her so autobiography. Good. Yep. Uh, she also wrote Labrie, The Hidden Art of Homemaking, A Way of Seeing, so many others. We're going to put those up on the website for you guys just so you have those. Even after Fran died, she continued to write, eventually retired, and she passed away in 2013 at the age of 98 yeah. at home in Switzerland. But what a beautiful life. That I just, so again, good. these biographies, it's just yeah, so fun. They so, are. yes. <laughs> so, thank you for joining us again. Thank you, Cheryl, for letting me come again. <laughs> it was really fun, and I wish you were here. Yes, we wish you were here, <laughs> Cheryl. But uh, we're glad that we were at least still able to come together and just, uh, yeah, share with you a woman that we love, obviously, yeah. a couple we love, uh, another woman worth knowing. So, again, if you have a woman you think is worth knowing um, that we need to know about, you can recommend anybody. We would love to hear from you. Write to us, wwk at cccm.com. You can also find us on the women.cccm.com website, graciouswords.com website. There's a link there for you to connect with us as well. So uh, on behalf of my mother, Debbie Allnut, and myself, Jasmine Allnut, thank you for joining us. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Bye. 
you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.